face in order to try to keep power over workers. They ended up undermining their own ability to innovate. And then the story from the 70s to today is one of never fully committing to changing production back because they don't want to give leverage back to workers. I'm Elena Van Stee, a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kirby Goff, Associate Director of Research at the Bonnick Institute at Rice University. We're the hosts of Moral Matters, a podcast of the altruism, morality, and social solidarity section of the American Sociological Association. In this podcast, we interview sociologists about their work and how it relates to sociology and society more broadly. Elena, I have to admit, I've learned a lot in preparing for this podcast. I didn't know very much about labor movements, especially auto workers. Uh, maybe actually that's probably a confession. You know, I study social movements and, uh, well, there's just so many kinds, so maybe it's not so bad. But I, I learned quite a bit about labor movements uh, in preparing for this podcast. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I did too. I uh, will say this certainly turned out to be a case where preparing in advance wasn't all that useful. I found with this podcast, I'd try to catch up on what was happening with the strike in preparation and only the next day find out that something new had unfolded. <laughs> right. You just got to stay tuned. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's the strategy, the drama, the tangible examples of solidarity, uh, just of what I've seen in the news uh, is really fascinating. And I'm hoping our guests can unpack that for us a little bit. In this episode of Moral Matters, we're talking with Josh Murray about his research on the automotive industry and its workers. Josh is an associate professor of sociology at Vanderbilt University and, with Michael Schwartz, the author of Wrecked, How the American Automobile Industry Destroyed Its Capacity to Compete. Hey, well, welcome, Josh. We're glad to have you on our podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And it's great timing, uh, it seems. Uh, with all that's been going on in the news, I know you've been speaking to uh, a lot of journalists recently about the United Auto Workers strike. So maybe could you briefly just describe the strike for us? Uh, what sets this particular strike apart from past auto strikes? And then kind of what the current status is. Yeah, so in, in the past, generally, uh, the United Auto Workers will go on strike against only one company at a time. Um, and usually it will be all the workers going on strike at once um, or a single plant going on strike. Um, and what sets this one apart is they targeted Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, and Stellantis is the, uh, used to be Chrysler. Um, they targeted them all at once simultaneously, and so they've never done this before. Hmm. And instead of all the workers going on strike at once in kind of a, a pre-announced strike, they targeted specific plants and refused to say ahead of time which plants that those would be. They tried to target plants that were integral to the overall production system of each company. Um, and the result was the, the biggest win for the United Auto Workers in, in decades. Uh, I think, I know the Ford settlement was a 40% raise. Um, and I think the other ones were around that 39%, 41%, all, all similar. Um, and of note to me, they also increased the path for getting to the highest wage level uh, made it quicker. Um, so rather than a two-tiered system where new workers are really, they don't go as high as older workers. Now they're all on one and it's a quicker path. But of note to me, they also retain the right to strike uh, in case of plant closings. So usually with uh, 
with the new contract, the UAW says we're not going to strike until the contract is up again. And so they retain the right to strike if any of the companies try to close the plant. I know in one of your early articles, you weren't very optimistic that, that this would work. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering if you're surprised and maybe what changed uh, right. in the uh, process. I'm not surprised. So I wrote an article for the conversation in September of 2019 when the UAW went on strike against General Motors. And that one was titled, Why the Strike's Destined to Fail. Mm. So I was not optimistic about that one. And, and in my view, it, it wasn't a success. They got barely more than they were asking for, than what was offered initially, but you know, lost a lot of money for the workers on it. On this one, I wrote an article for the conversation, kind of going over what the, what the implications of the strike were. And in it, I said that I, I expected this to be one of the most successful strikes they've had. And so what changed between 2019 and now um, is the strategy they used. And so it really is the, the, the differing, the change in my expectations of the outcome really are borne out by my observations in the book. One of the, you know, the main argument of the book is about why the U.S. auto industry is declined, why they lost so much market share. Um, and to kind of really quickly say that, because that's not really the point I'm making, but it's tied to it. It has to do with the way they structure their production. Um, the fact that it's, has a lot of redundancy built in is very spread out, um, whereas Japanese automakers and, and European automakers are more concentrated and it allows the successful use of just-in-time delivery and, and other flexible production um, that enable implementation of innovation, uh, whereas U.S. companies, it's costly to innovate, so they're always behind. Um, and in the book, the argument of, of why the difference in production structures has to do with the, the U.S. actually they pioneered the concentrated production and then changed it after World War II in response to the Flint strike. And so the reason being that concentrated production gave this great, what I call structural leverage, uh, where a handful of workers could shut down the plant and that plant would, produced all the parts for all the different cars that are made. And so it would shut down you know, 80% of production. And it was just this overwhelming structural leverage. Um, and it was hard to plan for because they would do sit-down strikes, so the companies couldn't use the old way of just coming in and hiring, you know, police officers to break up the strikes. Um, and so they they spread it out so they didn't have that leverage. And the the way the prior way that the UAW struck, which was as I mentioned before, everybody goes on strike and we announce it ahead of time, allowed the companies knowing it was coming to ramp up production and and keep get uh, a stockpile inventory so they could wait them out on the strike. And this strike, what they did was they, you know, they can't, don't do a sit down strike anymore and the production isn't concentrated, but they mimicked the leverage of it with this new stand up strategy, which was we're going to pick plants that are key to production that will reverberate through their choke points that reverberate through the production system. And we're not going to announce it ahead of time because you have no chance to move inventory or stockpile. And we hit, and it and it right it cripples production, and then they can if you make a an agreement at that plant, then they go off strike and strike at a new plant, and that it 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 had the same effect as the 1936 sit down strike, which is very quickly the companies just they can't defeat it, and they had to compromise and give in. And so knowing that that was their strategy and seeing the mimic of it, I thought this one's going to work. Whereas the prior one, I thought they don't have the leverage. And so one of the ideas I really try to explain in the book is this idea. Um, of structural leverage is, is how much damage can you do in how much time does it take you to do it really is going to dictate how successful you are because 
in a strike, the workers striking are also suffering. So if you go for too long, then you suffer for too long and you're going to fold and the company wins. Um, and the length of time has to do with how much damage you do to the company before they fold. And so that leverage can make it so that with, with minimal, minimal workers, you can do maximum damage in minimal amount of time. I think that's going to help you. Yeah, Josh, for those who aren't familiar, could you maybe give us your uh, the elevator pitch of the book? Tell us about your methods, your findings, um, and maybe how you think it most relates to the current strike. Yeah, so the, the book is really animated by the puzzle of, if you go back to 1960, four General Motors and Chrysler have 99% of the domestic market. Uh, Detroit's the main center where cars are made, and it's the richest city of its size in the world. Flint is the main city within Michigan, right? And and for small cities, it's the richest richest small city in the United States. There's there's this prosperity associated with making cars, and the U.S. industry is dominated by these three companies. And fast forward to when I'm writing the book, and still true to today, uh, the three companies have less than fifty percent of domestic market share. Flint is a poor city suffering and with their water polluted. Detroit is a poor city where people have moved out in mass. Um, and so say what happened, right? We're still, the United States is still the richest country in the history of the world. How in the richest country in the history of the world is the central industry completely bottom out to where people really suffer in the places that used to make the car. Um, and the methods, it's a historical sociology. Um, and it's really a kind of a triangulation where we look at the history of the Japanese auto industry, the history of the U.S. auto industry, and then uh, and then kind of trace the two to World War II and then to today um, and do a comparative analysis to see what happened. In the early days of the U.S. industry, they were highly integrated, right? So there's all these studies. So one of the things we did is took a bunch of disparate studies on the auto industry and tried to bring them together to tell this story. So there's all these studies in, in business on innovation in the auto industry. Um, and in the early days, it was extremely innovative. Just like every year, there was massive changes in how they produced uh, cars that increased the quality. Um, and then you see that innovation kind of fall off post-World War II. Um, and, and today, they're, they're, they lag behind. They'll eventually implement an innovation, but it's after Toyota does. It's after Honda does. Right? It's after all the other ones do. They implement it because they, they have to at that point. And that's really, you don't, you don't benefit from innovation when it's that right, right? Innovation is about being first. Um, once everyone's implemented, you're just keeping up. Um, and so that, right, that, that's kind of the, and then, so the Japanese auto industry, they're highly innovative now the way the U.S. industry used to be. And that's not really a, a big finding of our book, right? That's as everybody agrees on that, that the Japanese and European cars are higher quality, especially in fuel efficiency. It has to do with being more innovative. Um, where our argument kind of, differs is what we found was that during the period the U.S. was really innovative, they had a similar structure of production. So this idea that the Japanese companies used this unique structure, this unique production structure just in time, delivery, and that, uh, you know, they've invented it. We actually found in the archives that the leader of Toyota went to Ford in, after World War II and learned the system from them, went and perfected it in Japan, and the U.S. companies abandoned it. And so when they come back using the system, right? It's they're innovative and the US companies aren't. And so then it led to the question of okay, why'd they abandon it? Hmm. Um, and that's where we get into kind of labor conflict and started tracing the the outcome of the Flint strike. And you can see in the words of the auto managers that they said we can't 
we can't have this leverage for the workers. And so they would already immediately after the point strike, they moved a, a, a factory to Buffalo and started making the same parts. They said they wanted to avoid what happened in Flint. Then World War, War, World War II comes in and pauses it. And it's really notable because the UAW and the companies and the government agree on a no-strike pledge. But the workers continue going on strike. They have all these wildcat strikes and they win every single one. And that really cements in management's head that we have to change the structure of production. Right? We, they, they have too much leverage. Even, even when we get an agreement, we still lose to them. Um, and so they go on the path of restructuring everything. And, you know, for 20 plus years, it's fine because the only, there's no competition. It's just them and they're all doing it. And it's only when the foreign auto companies come in using their old style that does it. And so the, the argument of the book is essentially they cut off their nose to spite their face in order to try to keep power over workers. They ended up undermining their own ability to innovate. And then the story from the seventies to today is one of never fully committing to changing production back because they don't want to give leverage back to workers. So they'll do a little bit to try to do just in time, but then workers will have a successful strike and they'll, they'll move things overseas again. Um, and so I think it relates to the current strike in three ways. Uh, one was my study of why the Flint strike happened. And this is relates kind of to the podcast a lot, which is the moral economy idea, applying um, the moral economy idea to that. And it was one of the things with this strike. I remember at the beginning, I was interviewed asking, is it going to happen? And I said, well, yeah, I expect it to. And I didn't think that that was controversial. And then I read the articles and all the other experts said, no, this is just saber rattling. It's not going to happen. Um, so, you know, felt good. Hey, I was right. But it was also surprising to me that no one thought it was going to happen. And I, my students in a class I had, I was telling them about this. And they asked, why did you think it was going to happen? And when I walked them through, I realized why no one else did. Mine was that in studying the Flint strike, there was all this language around moral economy that they said that, you know, essentially when the industry is really innovative, there's this kind of agreement of shared sacrifice and shared reward. So whenever there's innovation, they'd have to furlough a bunch of workers and lay them off. But when the innovation worked and the companies made profit, they'd hire the same workers back at higher wages. And of course, the company made more money off of it. But the workers saw that as we both sacrifice and then we both reward, get the reward. And with the depression, what happened is they laid off all the workers and the workers didn't go on strike at first, right? Um, and, and the idea was that they thought this is that saying the company's suffering will suffer too. But when GM started making more profit than they did before the depression, they didn't hire the same workers back. They hired new workers to pay them in, um, intro wages. And the rhetoric around the UAW was that this is immoral, right? That 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 the company is not playing by the, the same rules. And so I heard that same logic being expressed by the UAW now that we sacrificed during the, the economic crash, we sacrificed during COVID, they're making all the profit and they're not sharing any with us. We're not getting anything back. And so I thought, well, okay, history is repeating itself, right? They violated the moral economy and this is what leads workers to feel justified in taking direct action. So that's one way. The second way was what I mentioned with structural leverage and, and seeing why this strike worked so well compared to previous strikes. And then the third way is kind of going forward. I think that um, there's some suggestions in case you want to ask me, I won't go too in depth on it, but I think there's some suggestions based on the history that I studied of what this strike might mean for the industry as a whole going forward. That's really fascinating. Yeah, especially that idea of moral economy. Uh, Elena, I've been talking about that a little bit. Um, you know, I saw a comment recently from the UAW president in one of the articles uh, and 
talking about the meaning of the strike, and this may be kind of what you're talking about, why you thought it would probably work. Um, he said, if we're going to truly take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so that it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, then it's important that we not only strike, but that we strike together. And that, that's a very strong kind of big picture moral statement about the meaning of the strike and um, uh, and not just, you know, not just being about uh, auto workers, right? It's about something much bigger than that. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's telling in, in two ways. So it very much that kind of language about morality and, and bringing in people that aren't auto workers, right? Kind of a, a class logic to it mimics and, and, and kind of rhymes with previous um, ideology by the UAW in you know, the 40s and the 50s when they were at their height, which is this, this similar um, view that, that their action wasn't just about getting auto workers money, but it was about making it better for the working class as a whole. And that's one of the changes that happened kind of with McCarthyism um, and other things as they, as they expelled leftists from the union, it became much more business unionism. It was really just about getting a better contract for the workers that are working right now under you. And so one of the things I show in my book is that the average, the average salary actually continues to go up. They don't lose on that. But the amount of workers employed plummets. So the money for the working class as a whole is much less. So you might make $23 an hour versus 20 but it's 100,000 workers instead of 300,000 workers. So if you, you do the math, they're not actually right. It's, it's a loss. Um, and so this, the, the business unionism seems to be gone. And this kind of class logic is back. Um, and it's telling that one of the, the histories of the Flint strike written by um, leftists in the union is called the many in the few. So, right. He says, interesting yeah. that they're right, using that language. Now, do you, is this similar, uh, would you say this is a similar kind of moral logic to what you uh, observed in the Flint strike and what you wrote about in your book, or is there um, something different going on here? I think at the the onset of the Flint strike, it it was a little bit less of a class logic. It was still um, certainly the the socialists and communists that kind of were leading the UAW at the time had that logic, but it hadn't fully gone in. They hadn't fully gotten it in. Um, so the Flint strike was very much about uh, an auto moral economy, which was that they had sacrificed and they hadn't showed in the reward. Um, so it's justified you know, taking direct action. But very shortly after that, it is the same logic, right? So that expands from uh, an abrogation of the moral economy to the auto workers to one of the working class. So you start to see the UAW talking about things like first thinking about asking not just for money, but for a say in production, um, how much is produced, where it's produced. And that's the thing that really galled the management they were okay paying a little bit more money. They were, they'd love to not, but they're okay with it. But the idea that the workers would have a say in managing the company was horrible to them. And then they moved beyond that and started talking about things like, um, you know, universal health care and, and things that mm. would go beyond just the auto workers. Um, and so I, I see a similar trajectory, right? That it starts with, we sacrificed and you're making profit and not giving any back to this is good for the class as a whole. And so it, it, it's, I do see, um, I do see similarities. Now, were there some, uh, you mentioned kind of, at least in one of your articles and probably, uh, as well in your book, were there examples outside of the auto industry where people 
kind of took up this uh, the this kind of moral economies logic or even some of the strategies and applied them in different industries? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even the sit down strike for the auto workers was in some ways relearned. Uh, there was a massive sit, uh, rash of sit down strikes in France, and you could see in the UAW's literature writing about that. And so they're they're already starting to borrow and it's a common thing in social movements is kind of learning from other movements um and the 30s was you know there was a a leftist movement growing and there was strikes in different industries now in this case the uaw kind of led the way and then it spread through other industries um but if you kind of look at unionization it starts with gm with the flint strike within a few years the whole auto industry is unionized and within a few years more than that, it spreads to all these other industries. And by the 50s, right, it's like almost half of, of non-government one percent. Um, so that so there is this kind of quick spread. And I think we see a similar thing in this case. I would say, you know, the teachers union strikes, I think, are part of this. Um, I know one of the strategies that was explicit with the old UAW was the idea, and this really set them apart from the AFL, right? The AFL strategy was... Um, Big, get, get big rallies of people together, pick it, um, try to get everybody on your side, and then take direct action and win. And the UAW strategy in Flint was the smallest amount of workers, you know, whoever you have that are really committed, go and win something small and show everyone else that you can win, and that will bring them to your side. So it was like a reverse. It was build through winning versus win through building. And I think there's been something like that here where, you know, the teacher, the teacher strikes um, going against their national union and then winning anyway, that starts to spread and say workers can win, right? They start to rediscover that we really have power. And so I, I expect this is that similar thing where it starts spreading industry to industry, and then it starts growing into a class logic that it's not individual workers, but workers in general can win and fighting for a larger thing. So I think, you know, there's probably traces back even to Occupy Wall Street and, and kind of just a movement of class logic growing. Building by winning instead of winning by building, I think. Yeah, that'll that'll work. You could probably you could probably put that on a t-shirt. Well, Josh, I'm just curious about um, what's next for you in terms of your research. I'm wondering whether uh, the the current what's happening has uh, opened up new ideas for you, or if you're on to something else next. A bit of both. So I'm I'm working my my other kind of vein of research is on um, corporate elite political behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm working on a book that has data on Fortune 500 uh, board members' individual donations to Cong congressional candidates since 1980, um, and try just trying to look at kind of how we how that contributed to where we are politically right now, the changes that have happened in the policy. So that's a little bit you know, related, but not not really in the same world. But but the the, the things happening now really do make me think that. Um, I, I need to write a little bit more just about the stuff we're talking about, how it applies, um, how, you know, moral economy and, as a concept can help us understand the wave of strikes and what happens, the idea of building through winning. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of little things in the book that are just part of this larger argument and are really, you know, footnotes or a tiny thing that I probably should pull out and, and talk about. Uh, especially as it seems to really apply now. Now it's no longer just understanding this history, but it's happening. Um, so that that will be added in with the other book I'm working on. 
We usually ask kind of a few uh, extra credit questions here at the end of uh, of our episodes. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you're moving into maybe kind of like uh, corporate politics, right? Um, you know, one thing that struck me about uh, this quote from the UAW president was that, you know, it's real similar to what we heard from the Occupy movement. Um, do you see some trends here that we should be aware of? I do. I, I, I think that at least since um, Occupy, you know, I'd be open to tracing it further back, but off the top of my head, it's kind of where I see it from. Everything's kind of related since then. And I think it's related to the idea of a moral economy. So each industry will have their own moral economy. I also think there's an overall societal kind of moral economy. And the way I kind of think of moral economy is it's not that the economy is moral, right? It's not that it's fair, but it's that there's an agreement a broad agreement among the workers and the capitalists uh, of what is acceptable, what's seen as fair. So the workers might struggle, but it's seen as struggle that's fair within the system. Um, and when that gets kind of broken, it really justifies direct action by workers. So, you know, stopping playing their role in the system. Um, and I think that the economic crash that kind of spurred Occupy was that first set where people class-wide started to see this as immoral, right? So it's not just, I'm poor and I'd like more money. Maybe I personally feel that it's not fair, but I think other poor people, it's probably fair to, this is not a fair system, right? Hmm. I've seen Wall Street crash it and then benefit while everybody else suffered. It was the first kind of moment when class-wide people were saying, okay, this we see this as immoral. And you know, some of the trends you saw coming out of that wasn't just the Occupy protests, but increasing popularity of socialism, decreasing popularity of capitalism, you know, Bernie Sanders being able to run as a socialist. I mean, just things that as we move on, I think become normalized. But at the time, you really think like there was a time that no, it was a slur to call any politician a socialist. And then you have somebody just say, I am a socialist and get almost get the nomination, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that, that is not, um, I don't think that's a charismatic leader. It's not just Bernie Sanders. That's embedded in the moral economy and the Occupy movement. And and so that then leads into COVID, which is another moment where I think people saw the idea of essential workers and that essential workers aren't the ones getting paid the most. And there, there's something in that that they saw as, oh, this this violates the way, the, the way that we think the economy works, like the moral economy of it. We think that the economy works and that it's supply and demand and it's fair and the most the most important workers get paid the most and then when you know when there's a disaster the ones we say you're actually the most important you're getting paid the least um and i you know i think the great resignation and things like that are related to it certainly not entirely but there's elements of this where workers are losing faith in the system and then searching for an answer and the answer's starting to be building through winning right Different unions are winning again, and they're rediscovering unionism. I think unionism was very unpopular for a while, and now the popularity is back. So there's this idea that unions are corrupt. They don't really do anything. And interestingly, I don't think that it's a totally crazy thought, right? Because as unions became more business unionist, there's an element where they weren't doing as much. Now, of course, they do something. Unionized workers, we can do the studies, and they always make more than non-unionized workers. So even a, even a bad union is better than no union. Um, but there is an element where... I think there's a historical memory of a better union in this one. You know, it, it made workers, workers were getting, you know, even with unions, workers were getting less money purchasing power, right? That the the value of their dollar was going down and it wasn't keeping up with it. 
um, CEOs are making more and there's just this overall view and workers were feeling, feeling bad about it. But recently that started to shift. And part of it is a shift in the strategy of union leaders and a strategy of workers, more radical leaders taking over. So um, Bain and the UAW are explicitly right. UAW, the former UAW leadership was corrupt, was giving kickback, getting kickbacks from the companies and, you know, they were ousted and this leadership took over really with a much more radical view, much uh, more commitment to direct action and a, and a, a wider class view that I think is embedded in this larger trend. So uh, I would expect just as in the past with, with uh, you know, unionization in the 30s, 40s and 50s for that to continue growing. Um, and then there'll probably be a backlash by elites as there was before. Okay. So do you, are you, you want to forecast that the class will start to kind of become a more central topic? I know it has, hasn't been for a little while. Yeah, I, I do think that as it goes on, that will become salient, more salient again, um, and, and really thinking through what that means with other developments of sociology and how it fits together with other forms of identity and other understandings. Okay. Well, we'll be paying attention. We'll make sure to give the credit too. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We're uh, just really grateful for uh, Dr. Josh Murray, uh, his insight, uh, being able to talk about his book, Wrecked, and in the context of uh, the recent strike. So we encourage you to go out and buy them. You can find it uh, at the Rose yeah, Stage Foundation. Yeah, it's available, you know, uh, everywhere that sells books. Everywhere that sells books. Yeah. Even bookstores. Even bookstores. If, if you happen to see one, even bookstores. <laughs> All right. Well, we'd also like to thank the, uh, the Altruism, Morality, and Social Solidarity section of ASA, who sponsors our podcast. Yeah, that's it for this time, and look forward to our next podcast. And in that podcast, by the way, we'll be chatting with Evan Stewart and Jamie Kaczynskis about their research on spirituality, religion, and political engagement. Until then, take care. Music.